Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Stephen. I'm Helen. And welcome to the New Statesman Podcast. We're going to do something slightly unusual, which is that we have airlifted the You Asked Us uh, this week to be our main feature because we think it's quite interesting, which is not something that you often heard said about Welsh politics. But Stephen's going to tell me off if I say that Labour lost its majority in Wales in the recent yeah, elections. Labour didn't have... Labour has never... <laughs> this is one, like, kind of... This is one of those interesting examples of, like, a point which... Yeah, so every is media wrong? outlet... Yep. has been saying Labour lost its majority in Wales. Labour had 30 seats out of 60, which mean, means they did not have a majority in the Welsh, in, assembly, in the Welsh right? assembly. They now have 29 seats out of 60. So they lost one seat. They still do not have a majority, but now they need to find two friends to help them as opposed to just one. Okay, so the other little change that's happened is that the Conservatives lost some seats, but their leader has stayed. Yeah. Uh, the UKIP, the UKIP, as I might call them, the UKIP gained seven seats. Yeah, from uh, from none. From none. Yeah. But have managed to do what UKIP are best at, which is to have it turn it all into a complete cluster fudge, as we say today. Yeah. We don't fall foul of the Apple rating. So basically what happened is that Sort of without Nigel Farage really wanting it, Neil Hamilton, who you may remember from being defeated by Martin Bell in a, in a sleaze by-election, uh, if you're of my age or older, uh, has returned to frontline British politics by um, standing for the Welsh Assembly, along with Mark Reckless, who lost Rochester and Strood at the general election, having defected from the Conservatives to UKIP. Basically, what seems to have happened is that the UKIP leader in Wales appointed by Nigel Farage took his branch of the party to their best ever result and promptly got cooed by Neil Hamilton, right? Yes, that is exactly what has happened. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a, a wonderful line from Revolt on the Right, uh, Rob Ford and Matt Goodwin's book about UKIP, where their voters live, their history, which is really, really worth... Uh, I mean, it's an academic book, so it's horrendously expensive, so I'd say get it from a library. Uh, but um, it's really worth reading if you want to understand UKIP better. There's a wonderful line in there about how whenever UKIP have a good result, they immediately start fighting. Uh, and and the wonderful thing is because the assembly is a circular building and because of the way the seating plan has worked out, they are physically split by a stairway as well. Like So there's Nathan Gill, who was the leader who's led them to their best ever result and has promptly been fragged. By his uh, his officers. What I think is even and worse is that four Neil Hamilton got four votes, right? So three other people, presumably Mark Reckless, I presume yeah. was one of those people. Two other people went, thanks, Nathan, but no, it's that guy, that guy that got defeated by the guy in the white suit. He's the one for us. Yep, um, that is pretty much what's happened. I mean, that means that we now have a situation where UKIP have UKIP's one MEP is at war with its its leader. UKIP four of UKIP's seven. No, one MP. MP, yeah. yeah so okay. 
Douglas of, Carswell, yeah. who who yeah, he and Nigel Farage have amazing handbag Doug, fights. Douglas Carswell is, I think, like possibly the weirdest politician in Britain because he occasionally says things like, "Why is this party so pessimistic? Why are we bashing immigrants all the time?" I wonder if maybe he wanted to defect to the Liberal Democrats, walked into the wrong room by a mistake, but just is too proud to admit that it's all some horrible mistake. I think the trouble is he wanted to defect to a party that didn't exist, right? He wanted to defect to a kind of slightly optimistic libertarian party, essentially. So immigrants, good, because that's just the free movement of of people. And then he's going, hang on, these people just seem to be trying to appeal to like men who like to drink beer and wear camel coats. This is not the the utopian vision I was promised. Yeah, and I think he's an interesting example of a very hard-working local MP who thinks that his personal vote is an endorsement, and you see it across left and right, who think that their personal profile is an endorsement of their politics, when actually it's an endorsement of the fact that they're people hard... Think, they're oh, hard, I saw him outside Tesco yeah, in campaign. They're hard-working, and people know that if they get evicted or they have some problem, then, then their MP will respond very quickly. In the last parliament, didn't UKIP have the highest kind of turnover of MEPs? I mean, you know, if you look back through the leadership of UKIP, I remember when Robert Kilroy Silk stormed. Well, I thought, was he stormed out or did he get chucked out after calling, saying, quote, Arabs were all women oppressors and limb choppers? No, so Kilroy uh, lost out in the power struggle at the top of, uh, of UKIP and flounced out to form Veritas. Veritas, of course, uh, yes. Which uh, then did very badly in subsequent elections. Uh, obviously, at the moment, Suzanne Evans, who many people, myself included, regard as the acceptable the, face of UKIP. yeah, like the most dangerous uh, UKIP politician, particularly to to Labour. She's she's the kind of politician that the radical right in Europe has found immense success with a very reasonable seeming woman who um who who just looks looks very respectable and calm and sane. She's a very good media performer. Yeah. I saw her at the Women for Out launch, and you know she is just she's got a slight hint of the. Not, I would say, the hyacinth bouquet, but she has got that sort of steep... She looks like she's the kind of person who would, you know, snip at their petunias while probably, you know, plotting to bring down the parish council. But, nonetheless, is a very effective media former. Um, Patrick O'Flynn, as well, who was a former Daily Express political editor, also a good media former. Both of them now, now out, in the out in the cold. But let's not dwell over UKIP's misfortunes for too long, Stephen. Because they are actually the second most interesting thing that's happened in Welsh politics this week. So, uh... There is not a majority for any party in Wales. Labour are the clear winners. Yeah, they they finished a hundred thousand. Well, they've got twice as many AMs as anyone yeah, else. Yeah, twice right? as many uh, uh, assembly members as anyone else. Uh, twice, um, yeah, they you know many many more votes than anyone else. Fifteen points ahead of their nearest competitors. Uh, and they think that when so when this last happened in two thousand and seven, uh, the first minister was confirmed in office, and then they had the coalition negotiation. Okay, but what happens this week is that Plaid Cymru nominate their leader, Leanne Wood, who they've now got a, a seat and on a big personal vote for her, for First Minister, which is not in itself kind of crazy, but it's sort of more of a kind of, hey guys, we're still here. And I do recommend um, Eleanor Cresci of The Guardian, who has written a great Medium post just explaining the, the chronology of this for those of you who might um, find Welsh politics a little bit opaque. But the weird thing is that then, bizarrely, well not so bizarrely, Conservatives and UKIP have decided to throw their lot in with Plaid Cymru to back her for First Minister. Well, so the, They the... claim it's not a conspiracy, right? They claim that it's just sort of all happened. UKIP, I think then Neil Hamilton in a typically UKIPian move went, oh no, we totally like talked about it with Plaid Cymru beforehand <laughs> yeah i mean things of course they did i mean it's, it's one of those like wonderful classics of uh of of like political spokespeople where they have to they have to say yeah we didn't do this but 
the, so the difficulty that Ply Cymru are continually stuck in, right, is that when they do well, Labour does badly and vice versa. And what tends to happen on the Assembly is Ply does slightly better. They force their way into a power-sharing agreement with, with the Labour Party. That goes quite well. And then we have exactly what happened with the Lib Dems in um, the 2015 election, where the bigger coalition partner eats the small coalition partner. I mean, in many ways, the Ply Cymru is like they're, they're like an owl which is being fattened up by, by, by the, in, yeah, in the pot for four years. I think you said an owl that's being fattened up. And I was like, who, who breeds owls for meat? And then, they, and then they get eaten by the Labour Party and then the cycle begins again. And But what about the Lib Dems or... The one Lib, the Lib Dem, the Lib Dem, the single solitary Liberal Democrat, the so, only woman to be elected to any legis, uh, any national legislature. Yeah, I was going to say you, uh, the one Lib Dem MEP. Oh yeah, is also is also a woman. Yeah. But all their Scottish uh, MSPs are all white men. All yeah. their MPs are all white men. Yeah. Some might say that perhaps the time come should come for them to look again at boosting the diversity of their ranks, and they consistently turn down all women shortlist. I would not be that crass to say that it's entirely up to the Lib Dems if they want to keep sending. The same man, eight of the same man to, to legislate. No, I don't think that's right. I mean, I think like the Scottish Lib Dems do all look like various incarnations of the same person. <laughs> However, you know, like you know, the the UK ones like Tim Farron's got like sandy hair. Tom Brake's got dark hair. I think John Pugh has no hair. Nick Clegg has that look of like sadness in his eyes that none of the rest of them can really quite match. Yeah, like about Labrador. Um, but no, but it's one of those things. Like I've now started seeing Chris Grayling as like a jumbo version of Ian Duncan Smith, like a sort of like a set yeah. of Russian dolls. But anyway, enough of of my cruel remarks about people's appearances. Uh, so Kirsty Williams, uh, the Liberal Democrat Assembly member, has gone with Labour. Yeah. That's still not enough to break the deadlock. This is the thing I find really interesting. Okay, so if they don't do a deal, they have to rerun the elections right in June if they kind of get there. Yeah. But Aren't there rules in lots of different legislatures about what happens if there's a dead heat? I'm fairly sure that there is one place where, like in the European Parliament, where it goes to the oldest person or that, you know, that you can end up tossing a coin for it. Yeah. Wouldn't it be great if there was some kind of, what's an appropriately Welsh, like like a one-on-one rugby match or actually just even just an assembly members rugby match for it? Um Yeah, I mean, the the other interesting thing is in some ways the matter probably wouldn't arise if... Uh, so the presiding officer, which is like the speaker, is done on a kind of turn basis. So it's Plyde's turn to be speaker, and it's Labour's turn to be deputy speaker. Mm-hmm. The amusing thing is, if it wasn't, if that, if it, things hadn't fallen that way, you'd probably have a situation in which one of them would have a spare vote, as it were, which would allow them to break the deadlock. I mean, ultimately, the divide within Plycomry is whether or not you need to get Labour out of power in Wales. Uh, by any by any measure, they point out that uh, all of the other parties did run, saying that 16 years of Wales being run by the Labour Party was probably enough, and it was time for a change. Mm. So they do arguably have a mandate for a rainbow coalition in which Plaid Cymru are backed up by UKIP and the Conservatives. But However, isn't this the same situation as you saw with the SNP making enormous amounts of hay out of Labour and the Conservatives standing on a platform together? I mean, if you're Plaid Cymru, and you, and you said before that their vote kind of is the same as Labour's votes in, in a lot of sense. I mean, it is a kind of centre-left with nationalist overtones vote. Mm. Are, are, really, But are Ply Cymru voters going to be that excited to see them, you know, working with UKIP, who have very different aims? Or is that vote is that vote a nationalist vote? It's not a, a left vote at all. Yeah, I mean, so the, 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 the interesting thing about Ply Cymru is that in some ways I think you can split their vote into sort of three types. You have a kind of left 
kind of intelligentsia uh, to Welsh listeners. I'm going to apologise for the fact it's going to be slightly broad brush for the aid of our non-Welsh listeners. Uh, but so kind of where they do well in places that are a bit like Islington or Edinburgh's Morningside district. And that's where they hurt the Labour Party most. Then in North Wales, it's more cultural. You know, and, and people, I think, kind of feel, even people who don't, but when that's where Plaid is strongest, and that's a more conservative, small C, and in some ways large C vote. Mm. Um, and it's much more to do with the language. You know, I mean, the thing that's very easy to forget is the Welsh language was forbidden by... By well, by by you know, successive British governments for a very long time. Yeah, and I thought that was a really interesting point in the Scottish referendum is that Gaelic or Gaelic uh, doesn't come up in the same way. It is, I mean, the, the cam- English campaign of suppression of that was a lot more successful. Yeah, but I think the the problem for Plaid Cymru just to defend uh, offend another group of podcast listeners because why not is that they have a more legitimate founding grievance mm. than Scottish nationalists do, right? The thing is, Scottish nationalism is it can be big and broad and inclusive because there is not a bit of Scotland which you go into and you kind of go, oh, but the conditions of Scottish independence are not ones which are relevant to me. However, if you live in a part of Wales where you can commute to bountiful jobs in Chester or if you live in Cardiff, then the the debates and problems that sort of, you know, power the plight and recall are not very relevant to you. So Plaid won't be wiped out and the Tories aren't as toxic in the same way they are in Wales, mm. uh, sorry, in Scotland. You know, the interesting thing about the 2015 election is the gradual unwinding of um, kind of Welsh exceptionalism. So now the Labour Party does about as well as you would expect given the demographics of Wales. It's not like, say, Liverpool, which really ought to be as marginal as Plymouth, but for a variety of cultural reasons... Liverpool is much more congenial territory for the Labour Party and much more hostile towards the Conservative Party. So I think, you know, Plaid won't be hammered by this in the same way. Mm. Uh, but, you know, they, they will lose out votes uh, you know, in the same way the Lib Dems did in coalition if there is another election. I don't think there will be another election, to be honest. I think that there will be some kind of, of deal uh, with, with the Labour Party. Ultimately... Clyde's 12 AMs, you know, they, they say they want to form a minority government. They they, they don't really have real enough minority government. assembly members to have a cabinet and a backbench. They can't pass a budget. You know, like they don't, they cannot command a majority. It would be a bit like if Ruth Davidson in Scotland said that she was going to govern as a minority government. Yes, the SNP are short of a majority, but they clearly won the Scottish elections and they are only, uh, oh God, I think it's too short. Similarly, yes, the Welsh Labour Party is short of a majority, but they clearly won the election. They're the only one who can command it. And they kind of have all of they all, all of the best cards are uh, the Welsh Labour Party's. Well, I think that is a big uh, rebuke to anyone who's claimed that we don't care about the devolved legislatures enough because now they've had like 12 minutes of devolved legislatures. Yeah. Probably people literally crying out for more, but no, we'll have to leave it there. I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And we host the Pop Culture Podcast from the New Statesman, Seriously. If you secretly care more about comics than Jeremy Corbyn, this is the podcast for you. You can find all our episodes at newstatesman.com forward slash S-R-S-L-Y. And now it's time to go down the line to the lobby with George. Hi, Stephen. 
Hi, George. So last night, ITV announced that their first EU referendum debate would be held uh, in early June, um, pitching David Cameron from the Remain side against Nigel Farage from the Leave side. And that prompted uh, a truly remarkable response from Vote Leave, the main anti-EU campaign group, um, who accused ITV of political bias, and in particular, their political editor, Robert Peston, uh, claiming that he was uh, a, a previous uh, supporter of the euro, something he, he went on to deny, and also warning rather menacingly that there would be consequences for ITV and that they should remember that uh, these guys will soon be gone from number 10. Yeah, it was... Um, I mean, there were there are lots of uh, remarkable things about uh, this slightly unhinged statement, which was followed this morning by a slightly more uh, lucid one, one of which is an, uh, Leave has sort of been maintaining this idea that Cameron would have to stay, haven't they? Yes, indeed. Um, I think it's also revealing that they're so reluctant for Cameron to be pitched against Farage. And that confirms what we've known all along, which is that they see Farage as a secret weapon for the Remain side. Because he is a polarising politician, um, because he has a toxic brand among some of the voters who they need to win over to get to 50%, they would obviously much rather have uh, Boris Johnson in the in the debate, who is, of course, the most popular politician in the country. How does that fit in with... Uh, so who at Vote Leave are mainly talking to Labour voters. Uh, you know, they're, they're the ones who they think they can win the referendum, which is why Jeremy Corbyn uh, will have a big role to play. How... What is the mood in the Remain camp uh, about the debate, about the, as we enter the final six weeks, I think it is, of the campaign? I think there's still confidence of victory. I think they ultimately think it will come down to the economy, as elections and referendums often do. And they're in a very strong position there because almost all mainstream credible economists, institutions, only differ on the extent to which Brexit would, would harm the UK economy. No one thinks that the UK would be better off out. But I think they are concerned that the polls remain so close. So there, of course, there is this divergence between online surveys and phone surveys. Phone surveys surveys have consistently given Remain quite a comfortable lead, as they occasionally did in the case of the Tories during the general election. Um, So some people think, actually, it's not neck and neck. Uh, The polls that we should trust show, show Remain ahead. But I think they're worried that the uh, ammunition that they've heaped on leave hasn't moved the polls in the way that some expected. Uh, you obviously had the hugely prominent uh, Barack Obama intervention. You had uh, the Treasury report warning that households would be an average of £4,300 worse off. And yet, if you'd only seen the polls, you would never have guessed that, that most of that had happened. And of course, it's a reminder that commentators, reporters almost always overestimate the impact that individual events will have. Um, What I think Remain can be more confident about is that in terms of the fundamental debates on the economy, they still have the advantage. But um, Leave's uh, research shows that their message that we should take back the, uh, the billions that we contribute to the EU and spend it on the NHS resonates with voters. Immigration is obviously a strong card for them to play. They've got Boris Johnson, who will guarantee them uh, acres of media coverage every time he turns up somewhere. And so a path to victory for uh, for the Brexiters is still clear. Well, on that uh, terrifying note, we'll be back next week.
And now we've kidnapped Anna Leskovitz of the Seriously podcast, our sister podcast, to come and join us to talk about one of the big musical events of the year, the release of Beyonce's visual album, Lemonade. So tell me, Anna, did you watch the visual version of the album first or did you listen to it just in audio form? I sought it out and watched it. I had to like sort out a title, you know, free trial. But I thought it seemed like the kind of thing where you should do it properly and like watch the whole thing in its entirety. And I'm really glad I did. In fact, I watched it twice the whole way through because that's the kind of Beyonce fan that I am. Yeah, I, Alex Hearn, formerly of this parish, posted a tweet on Twitter which he's like, oh, I've realised that people pronounce her, the first syllable of her name as B, so it's like the beehive, not the bayhive. <laughs> How did he not know that? Well, I didn't know that either. I did think it all the time that like that it was the bayhive. I think you can do like a bit of one or the other. Like Some people are still like, yes, bay, yes. But yeah, the beehive but is those not are American the American people, I hope. Yeah, they're Otherwise not they <laughs> ridiculous. Stephen, you did it the other way around, right? You listened yes, to it. Yes, I, so I have now watched uh, the first half of it in preparation for uh, this one. But I listened to it first uh, because I actually have a... I think it's because I, we didn't have a television when I was growing up. I find it quite hard to watch. I'm also very bad at art installations. Unless I'm in a cinema and it's literally like, it's dark. <laughs> There's nowhere else to go. I Is don't this know not related to your general attention span, Stephen? Okay, I also have a short attention span, okay? I, but I, I'm, I'm going to come with you on this one, which is actually, I, I try now to watch films in the cinema because otherwise it's like halfway through and I'm just like, I wonder what's happening over on eBay. <laughs> and, and you never kind of fully appreciate yeah. anything. But I, I, I too watched it and I just think that it's, it's quite interesting because I've spoken to people, music critics, who said, well, when you listen to it as an album, just purely an audio experience, you kind of don't get, people kind of say, well, of course it's all about infidelity and, and you don't quite experience that, that that sort of anger and the obviousness of some of those references particularly if you're not a, one of those weird people I don't understand them who say they don't really listen to lyrics because mm, when I'm listening to a song I'm normally trying to work out what all the lyrics are yeah I agree but I think there are also audio differences between the two versions so for example you don't get things like um the moment that a lot of people really responded to very very strongly from the outset which is the Malcolm X clip that says uh, the black woman is the most disrespected person in America and so on. And that's Which just is not played in the, in the visual um, album over shots of... Well, they're just ordinary... Not just, but they are ordinary women, aren't they? They are... They're, sort of no, they're not selected for any sp- particular reason. Yeah, I can't quite remember what the shots are. I think they're like... Isn't it black and white civil rights footage at that exact moment? And I then think. there's also shots of individual women in a kind of sepia right. tone as well. Yeah, I thought that was... One thing that really came across really strongly is just the number of, of, of cultural references that you get in it. I mean... I mean guest artists are a kind of different question i guess but you know this is a this is something that is very intertextual it refers to a lot of other things not just with using the poetry of orson shire but also having malcolm x having serena williams you know having being referred to those kind of things i thought were really interesting yeah massively and we had a really interesting piece on the website actually by simran hands about the cinematic references in there um so daughters of the dust is a sort of 90s film that she references quite a lot um but yeah it's it's just huge and really thick with references and you can actually download something called a lemonade syllabus online now that says all the different books you should read and all the different films you should watch if you want to get them all okay but here's my bay related heresy or b related heresy if this is the thing i enjoyed the film version much more than i enjoyed any of the individual songs so i i'm really bad at hearing lyrics so i actually had to listen to it with the lyrics 
in yeah like i bet yeah basically hack effectively in order to hear lyrics i need to listen to them with subtitles uh for years i thought in the chorus of i believe in miracles was abo nico nako which isn't as crazy as it sounds because my mom (laughs) my my mom listened to a lot of world music okay (laughs) like so it's not entirely far-fetched could you sing it with those lyrics so yeah i thought it was abo nico nako since you came along yeah, you rescued okay, me cool. <laughs> because I just assumed it was like some weird foreign thing. I mean, this she's one of those people who has that, like you know, like you know, one of those is it Teze or you know, like she's just got a lot of. Your mum has Teze music. Yeah. Oh my god, I went to Teze every summer in a row for like three years. I think your mum and I need to have a big Christian chat at some point. Anyway, <laughs> Promise that's... me that will never happen. We can do some... She'll, she'll know some of the really old chants as well, and we can do them together. Yeah, but so, yeah, she just has a lot of odd music, and so it, it was more sensible to... But mm. I, I... I mean, I think that there are sort of two sorts of, of great records. There are some great records which sort of make sense when you split them into their component parts, and then you're listening to all of your music on shuffle. You suddenly go, wow... I Want to Be Yours is a brilliant song. Mm. And then there are some where you really appreciate how good they are when you kind of listen to them through and you go, wow, The Defamation of Strickland Banks, brilliant album. And I think this is very much, again, and The Defamation of Strickland Banks, with the exception of She Said, He Said, does not split well into its component parts. Yeah, that's why it feels quite concept album doesn't it? Because Uh, uh, actually when they come on, and I felt this a bit about the last album too, is that all the bits of interstitial stuff that work really well when you listen to it through actually you know the, like the beginning of um oh what's the what's the one with the chimanda um quote? Oh, flawless yeah and actually you've got all the beginning bit about you know beyonce lativia girls time and then and all yeah. that kind of stuff that's yeah, at the end of both clips. um th- that works really well but actually when i'm out on a run listening to that song i kind of just want to listen to the song bit mm-hmm. and i think that's why i think it's quite a brave artistic choice because it's actually it's sort of moving away from like here is my 12 you know three minute pop bangers into saying like no i'm going to demand much more from you in in listening to this album yeah i mean i think because this thing is like no one ever assesses like madam butterfly or whatever based on the fact you have to listen to the whole opera from beginning to end um no one really assesses the wall uh on that that metric uh, but yeah, it is very much a... But given the... I think it's an interesting kind of reflection of where we are in terms of the technology of, of, of music in that you have now streaming services like Tidal that kind of have slightly reformatted how people listen to music. I guess because this, this isn't an album that is very radio-friendly, really, is it? Yeah, I think it's there not... are some that, that you could do that with, but not they're few and far between. It's not something that you think... It's not like a, a Rihanna album before Anti, where mm. you would be like, ah, oh, well, all these six songs are singles. It's definitely not like that. Yeah, and I think that's that's reflective of the, of the changing distribution method. It has more confidence about the fact of being able to present itself as one kind of coherent whole. Anna, I just want to get your take. So um, Bell Hooks, the... Uh, renowned feminist wrote a piece about it in which she uh, i'm sure this like made heads explode across tumblr she uh called out as i believe you young people say beyonce for being intersectional intersectional which is a kind of criticism that's followed beyonce around about her her feminism about you know it being so entwined with with capitalism and her being so i mean she and jay-z are worth what i think close to a billion or so i mean they're worth an extraordinary amount of, of money and she explicitly references information your best revenge is your paper there's a kind mm-hmm. of thing about being a self-made person about you know it's a kind of big screw you to be to be rich in that situation how much of that critique do you think is is 
fair or, or interesting, actually, or, you know, helpful in kind of considering Beyonce as an artist? Well, I think it was a very thoughtful piece. And I think for the most part, it's good to engage with stuff on this level, which is obviously something that Bell Hooks has always done. I was a big fan of outlaw culture um, and things like that. She does take pop culture and engage with it seriously. A lot of people think that maybe she's not quite as on it with pop culture nowadays and she doesn't quite get some of the relevance of certain things. But I think in general, that piece... It was like a very bell hooks piece. Um, and I think some people feel that having read like a bell hooks interview with Emma Watson, where she's like very gushing about her sort of feminism and her celebrity feminism, that it was a little harsh. But I think in general, it's good just to like engage with this stuff as proper art. But I also think there's a point in there where she says something like, oh, this album um, doesn't fully dismantle patriarchal assumptions. And you think, well, it's an album. <laughs> it's not, you know, a piece of political literature. And sometimes we have to be careful in the way we talk about these questions, I think, because sometimes there's so much about, like, to what extent is Beyonce feminist and so on. And sometimes you have to think, is that a question about feminism or a question about celebrity? Which are we more interested there? Yeah, I thought there there are some things that are are really interesting about the... I think it's... What I think is interesting about about Hooks is she's writing from an earlier tradition that was, for example, you know, in the 70s, you know, there's a huge swelling in feminism, people like Shulamith Fyerson, about dismantling the nuclear family. And actually what you have in Beyonce is somebody who is, is very... Guess respectable, in and I know that's a very loaded word in this context. But you know, mm. she has got married and had a and had a child, and she's you know been to a, a presidential inauguration. She sang, didn't yeah. she sang Etta James at yeah. last for the um, at the first, first inaugural ball, and I think that's what's quite interesting as a sort of tension because a lot of the backlash to Bell Hooks, the sort of slightly unthinking backlash, was like you know like screw you, you know what's you know it, you you know she's got a man and she's got loads of money and she's what's wrong with and there's this really weird word that crops up now in in online feminism a lot which is femphobia which is this idea that you, if you make a criticism of, of of women who have very sexualized presentations that that's actually a result of of this of this kind of in deep in sort of inherent hatred in yourself of of, of things that are feminine and it's sort of a, it's a sort of weird inversion of of everything that I was kind of grew up being taught about about feminism that yeah you make choices within you know the the sort of strictures that you're in but you don't have not every choice is a feminist choice and that's kind of okay yeah I agree with you but I think there's there's two separate things going on there as well which is that we know that things that are generally associated with the feminine are more maligned in culture so there are points at which that can be valid but I think there are other ways in which this whole conversation becomes like oh bell hooks drags Beyonce when that's not what happened. And the problem is that about this idea about the feminine being maligned is it's not, you can't rehabilitate the feminine except by uncoupling it from women. So Deborah Cameron, Deborah Cameron, the, the feminist linguist, talked about the idea, you know, we're always told that women are, say sorry more or that women, uh, there's a big thing about, you know, vocal fry, about women having this kind of mm. raspy voice. And actually you find that it's, it's not, women don't say sorry more and they don't have more vocal fry. It's just that people just fundamentally don't like women's voices and they, what the way that they find that, that express that just shifts all the time, constantly. Or women who don't say sorry, you know, people mm. expect women to behave in a certain way. So if it doesn't happen, then... The way that they're well, then you get stigmatised as well. Yeah, yeah. and the, the problem is, it's not that you can rehabilitate saying sorry, or you can teach women that they shouldn't say sorry. It's whatever women are perceived to do is in, is always then classed as being the lower 
thing that's mm. the thing there's a really interesting stat about you know the best way to reduce the wages in a profession is to feminize it so you go from teachers being seen as kind of you know people in gowns are very respectable to now most teachers are women and it's kind of seen as a, a slightly you know a reasonable job but not a kind of authoritarian figure in the same way it was when that job was done by men mm. anyway, it was a massive digression Stephen, One thing I, I was gonna say tell us about which banger you liked best um yeah i mean i, I think sorry is probably my my favorite track which is the uh, the Vampire Weekend uh, ish one. I have a massive soft spot for Vampire Weekend, particularly in their current post-modern vampires of the city vibe, because Modern Vampires of the City came out the week that I and my partner moved in together, so I have a great deal of affection for it as a record. Oddly sweet in this album, which is ultimately about infidelity. The thing about the the, the Bell Hick, 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 uh, Bell Hicks, the, the thing about Bill Hicks <laughs> is he's an entirely irrelevant American comedian. Uh, the thing about the Bell Hooks uh, critique of it is that it's true, isn't it? But at the same time, it's exactly as Anna says. Well, one, it's an album. It's probably not going to dismantle anything. But also, it feels a bit like some of the criticisms that are occasionally de- leveled at at us from a political perspective which is when people are surprised that a social democratic magazine is moderate gradualist constitutionalist or, kind ta- of or take adverts i think that's yeah, the kind yeah, of thing like, that's really interesting is that people that, that, that kind of just think if you want you know why are you you're making your accommodation yeah, like but beyonce has always been you know an advocate for and a prominent member of an attitude towards black and female empowerment and is about ameliorating with and making success through capitalism you can critique you can critique that a great deal but the strange thing is that i i loved i loved right reading it um yeah i loved the commas but are you but, saying that she's a uh, is that in any way uh, this i'm so glad i'm saying this on the podcast not on twitter that she is a black cheryl sandberg yeah i think that it's there's... actually a very empowering self-helpy kind of you know you just need to be stronger kind of you know, is it attentive to the material conditions that women find themselves in that aren't their fault? I mean, so it's interesting because the, the, with the Sandberg dimension, there's something that she herself has acknowledged since the death of her husband, which is that she feels that she had not been fully cognizant of the difficulty of raising a child on your own, mm. um, which I think is a more legitimate critique of, of Lean In. But however, a lot of the critiques of Lean In is that a long-standing moderate democrat in the case of sandberg is advancing solutions that are part of being a moderate democrat which is true but it is a bit like going oh the new statesman is a bit fabian and liberal isn't it and but that's like, one of the reasons that i really i think yeah. something like formation and the video for formation i think is is so powerful is because she's coming from a very mainstream perspective in some ways you know mm. this is absolutely and this is going to be an enormous selling album she is absolutely a fundamental you know she can shift huge amounts of tour tickets and then to have somebody of that stature talking about police violence that's you know that's that's in itself is is there's more cost to her doing that than somebody who who doesn't have any kind of bridges to burn if you see what i mean and i think that's the same thing with someone like sambo make you know she is in a position of power and it, and i think it's easy to underestimate how hard it is to say things when you're in that position and i think beyonce should be applauded for having this massive platform that she's then used to say some things that are really difficult i mean there will mm. be i'm sure that there are white supremacists who would send her death threats over things like the formation video yeah and i think also there's a there's a conflation of beyonce the celebrity and lemonade the album which is, yes, of course, it can feel very uncomfortable to hear 
um, you know, advice for women in general coming from, you know, the mouth of someone who's wearing very expensive lipstick and has got diamonds all over her fingers and stuff. But this album isn't, there's not really much about celebrity or fame or anything like that in there. It's, you know, it's not, if we can disassociate it as a piece of work from her reputation, then that would be different, I think. And I really liked on this album the songs at the end. Like, I just thought they were so lovely, which is why I was quite interested in Bell Hooks's idea about um, men and women and love and trying to overcome feminism through love. And at the end of her piece, she sort of criticises the idea that you can't fully move forward in a feminist way if the male in this relationship that, the, you know, the infidelity in the relationship that the album's about, if he doesn't fully transform himself which is something that I just found interesting because Bell Hooks normally talks about visionary feminism completely through the lens of like male-female love. So it was interesting to me that she didn't see that as something that was possible at the end of Lemonade. I think that's one of those things where you kind of think you want the utopian, you know, you, you actually, I don't, I mean, we no one, we none of us know what how much of what's on that album is autobiographical or not. Mm. I mean, it's certainly... The, you know, it's an album that try, that plays with that idea very deliberately. But therefore, you kind of say, well, maybe that's just the way it happened. You know, maybe that's the that's where things are. You kind of think, well, maybe it'd be more radical if she left him, and yeah. that was the plot of the album. But actually, that's not. It's one of those things about people wanting to tell, wanting the story to be kind of you know perfect social justice kind of. And of course, narrative. the thing is, if she left him, then people would point out, and they would be entirely yeah. fair in saying they would say, oh, but it's very easy to walk out on someone if you are independently wealthy, etc., etc., etc. But then, um, but Hooks herself says, you know, women are often belittled for, belittled for trying to resurrect these men and bring them back to life and love. They're in a world that would be even more alienated and violent if caring women did not do the work of teaching men who have lost touch with themselves how to love again, which I think is what the last couple of songs on Lemonade are all about. So obviously for Hooks, it didn't quite reach that ideal that she's talking about here. But for me, I felt like it sort of did. As long as she keeps Jay-Z away from guest verses on other people's <laughs> songs, I'm happy. On that controversial note, I think one of the things that we should say is probably that this is one I think, I mean, it's nice for us just because as cultural critics, this is an album which there is so much stuff to talk about. You know, it is an mm. album that aspires to to say something. And I always like that about art, even if it is whatever problematic or whatever you want to say about it, is that it's tr- it's trying and it, it succeeds hugely in being in really, really interesting. I mean, I'm, there's a lot more to say about it than there is about the Radiohead album, isn't there, frankly? And like, as Beyonce would say, you know you're that bitch when you cause all this conversation. Thanks, Anna. <laughs> <laughs> all the women who are independent. Oh, this is my, that's my era of Beyonce. Anyway, thanks, Anna, for joining us. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Helen Lewis, with Stephen Bush. Our producer is India Bork and our music is Devil with a Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. You can find us on iTunes or at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Mm-hmm.